Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We started a couple of weeks ago going through the book of Romans, uh, and we've worked our way up to chapter 3. Um, let me kind of recap and, and um, bring you up to speed a little bit and, and set the stage for, for uh, what we want to say tonight. Of course, you know that Paul didn't write in chapter and verse, and so the, the chapter designations can be a little bit difficult for us uh, because sometimes it's in the middle of a thought and and uh, for that reason, we need to go back and see the last thing that was said in many cases. We don't know who started the church at Rome. We know Paul did not. Paul is, uh, at the time that he writes this, probably 56, 57, maybe 58 A.D. Um, Paul identifies that he hasn't been to them. He's wanted to come to them, but he's been hindered every time that he's tried. And so we don't know exactly the, the origins of the church at Rome. But we do know this. We know that uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that uh, among those that were gathered and heard the Holy Ghost um, or, or witnessed the Holy Ghost outpouring and heard the disciples speak in tongues were strangers from Rome, strangers from Rome, Jews and proselytes. So we know that the church at Rome has a Jewish influence. Many of the people that Paul identifies and, and sends greetings to at the end of the book or the letter are, are Jewish names. Not all of them, but many are Jewish names. And so uh, Paul is certainly aware of the, the influence of Judaism on the church at Rome. Now, whether that's specific to the church at Rome or if that's just generally the way that, that um, uh, things are going at that part of the, uh, at that time in the world, we don't know. But either way, it would be about the same, same difference as far as uh, what he needs to tell them. Paul has been building a case in chapter 1 and chapter 2 for the wrath of God, the judgment of God to be poured out upon all flesh. Now, some people have a hard time with that because they only want to see God as a loving God and, and so forth. But he's having to build the case because the, the prevalent thought in Judaism, which has a big influence on the, the churches everywhere at that point in time, is that the Jews thought that only the Gentiles would be judged. They thought that since they were God's chosen people, that they were the, the physical and natural descendants of Abraham, that they were the ones that were the, delivered the law and the prophets, that only the Gentiles would be judged. And that has a lot to do with why Paul spends so much time in chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2, specifically talking about those that judge others but do the same things that they're judging others for doing. Because the Jews felt like since they were God's chosen people, that was perfectly, perfectly acceptable. And so Paul is building a case for Jews and Gentiles alike to be treated the same and worthy of the same wrath and the same vengeance. In chapter 2, verses 17 through... Um, 29, Paul is identifying one of the last, the seven, last of the seven principles of God's judgment, and that is God's judgment is based on reality and not religious profession. And that's directly uh, attributed or, or pointed at, directed at the Jews because they thought they were above anything that God would do because of who they were and, and their, uh, their heritage, the fact that Abraham was their father. So Paul concludes chapter 2, the last two verses of the chapter, he says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Now we know that Paul's message is justification by faith in Jesus, not according to the law, and that's easy for us to, to accept and easy for us to identify with because we never were under the law. But you've got to realize he's writing to people that for the most part, or at least in, in great part, have to strip away everything that they've been taught, every advantage that they've been schooled in, everything that they've ever been told through their heritage in the synagogues and so forth that was beneficial to them because they were the Jews. And so Paul starts in chapter 3 with three questions from a Jewish perspective. Question number one is in verse one. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? In other words, if these things that Paul is writing is true, that every man is uh, an, uh, subject to and worthy of the wrath and the judgment of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, then what's the point in being a Jew? What good is it? What good has it done them? Paul answers the question in verse two. He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, he's saying, you don't realize the benefit and the blessing of having the law and the prophets delivered unto you. Now, why didn't they, why didn't they recognize the benefit? Because they didn't keep it. 
they had a national sense of pride because they were God's chosen people. And the sign of being God's chosen people was twofold. Number one, they were delivered the word, meaning the law and the prophets. Secondly, they had the outward sign of circumcision in their flesh. But that's about as far as it went. There were many times as uh, recorded in the Old Testament where for generations the law wouldn't even be known. In Josiah's time, King Josiah's time, there was, there was one copy of the law and it had to be resurrected. It had to be found, searched out and found so that something could be done. God had to bring the law back from the dead, as it were. Well, if the Jews were so big about God and being God's chosen people, why'd they let it slide? Paul goes on to say, for what if some did not believe? In other words, he's talking about the times of unfaithfulness on the part of the Jewish people. Let me, let me paraphrase this, this, this way to help you understand what he's saying. He's saying, and what about your unfaithfulness to keep the law? Should your unfaithfulness cause God to be unfaithful on his end? That's what chapter 2 or verse 3 is about. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Paul says, God forbid. God's going to be faithful no matter what. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Every man means Jew and Gentile. And then he does something that's very interesting. He quotes a verse of scripture from the Old Testament from Psalm 51 that's David speaking about the judgment of God that came upon him. Remember, his son died because of his sin with Bathsheba when he was unfaithful in the position God gave him as king. There's a reason why he picks this verse. He could have picked any number of verses to make his point, but he picked the one that David said when David had been unfaithful in his position as king. As it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Here's question number two that the Jews would have. If these things are true that Paul is writing, and remember, Paul's got a reputation. Paul knows, and he's going to say in just another verse or two, he's going to say, I know what people say that we preach. They slanderously report of us that we preach something that we don't don't say and don't believe. So he knows he has a reputation. So he's approaching this from the standpoint of when people read this letter, if he just started talking about the righteousness of God without without, uh, identifying the wrath of God and God's uh, righteous judgment, and the, the judgment that is due unto mankind, both Jew and Gentile. If he just starts off with the righteousness of God, then the Jews are going to have arguments against that. They're going to say, well, yeah, that might be true, but what about the law of Moses? And that's why Paul starts off, and really it, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, is an indictment against mankind, both Jew and Gentile. And here's the reason. Because if man doesn't realize his need, he won't rec- recognize and accept the conviction of the Holy Ghost to receive Jesus. If the Jew thinks he doesn't need anything, if the Jew thinks he's going to avoid judgment anyway, what do you need Jesus for? See the point? So here's a second question, verse 5. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of, of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Now, Paul is identifying this last phrase, I speak as a man. He's saying, now, I'm a Jew, but I don't think this way. But I know the Jews are saying these things. Now, what is he saying? He's saying... Where it starts off, if our unrighteousness come in the righteousness of God. He's talking about the times where the Jews, as a nation, turned away from God and ignored the law. See, the Jewish argument was this, to the Jewish argument to the gospel of Jesus, was this. Well, if we did disobey the law, like Paul and some of these others preach, if we were unfaithful, and our unfaithfulness just revealed the faithfulness and the righteousness of God in keeping his word, then we did good. We did the right thing. We helped God out. Because surely God wants to be seen as righteous in the earth, right? That was the argument that Jews were making. So Paul is addressing that argument. He said, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance on us? In other words, we did him a favor. Wouldn't it be unrighteous of God for him to pass judgment on us for our sin? The answer is in verse 6. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? In other words, he's saying, if God can't judge the Jews for their unrighteousness according to the law, how is God going to judge the world? And he will. Here's the third question in verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Here's what that means. The Old Testament prophesied. God said over and over again, here's the law, here's what's available to you, but I know you won't keep it. He said, these people 
worship me with their lips. They speak on my behalf with their lips, but their heart's far from me. Over and over and over again, God said, here's where the Jews will fail. Here's where the Jews will turn against me. And here's the, unrighteous, or here's the, uh, the judgment that will come upon them because of it. They'll be overthrown by the Babylonians. The Assyrians will take them, whatever the case might be. Time after time after time. Now, God's not prophesying it into being. He's just calling it before it happened. And so the Jewish argument is, well, if our unrighteousness... If our doing wrong brought glory to God and showed the truth of his word, the truth in the fulfillment of his prophecies, why yet am I judged as a sinner? I was just fulfilling the plan of God. Now, folks, whether you know this or not, this is the Jewish form of God's sovereignty doctrine. God was behind everything that happened, so how can he hold us responsible? Can you see it? Paul answers further or speaks further. And not rather, here's where he talks about, I know what's being said of me. Here's what's reported that I'm preaching and I'm not. And not rather, as we have slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil. In other words, if our unrighteousness showed forth God's truthfulness and brought glory to him and his word, then why shouldn't we take a step further? Why shouldn't we do evil that good may come? Why shouldn't we just sin? To show God's glory because God always overcomes sin with his grace. Now, the last phrase in this verse, uh, what is it, verse 8, where it says, whose damnation is just. This is Paul's commentary. He said those that think that and those that claim that, they deserve the judgment they're going to get. Folks, that's always been the case. Many people will take the, the teaching of righteousness by faith in Jesus and use it as a license to sin or claim that others are preaching it as a license to sin. It's been that way from the beginning. It's the f- number one thing, the number one obstacle that Paul had to deal with among the Jews in his ministry. It's where the gospel started. It's the devil's work to try to overcome the truth of righteousness. What then? Verse 9. Are we better than they? Meaning the Jews better than the Gentiles? No, in no wise, for we have both proved before, proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now, remember the question. The question is in verse 7, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? The answer is in verse 9, the end of verse 9, we've proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. This phrase under sin is interesting because it means to be quarantined. It means to be quarantined. There's another verse of Scripture. Let me read it to you real quick. It's Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22 Paul uses the same, uh, the same language to speak of, uh, speak of this truth. He says in Galatians 3.22, But the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of literally in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. In other words, this is doctrine that Paul preached and built on everywhere that he went. This is not some new thing. It's not some specific thing that he's teaching in the Roman church because they're different from anybody else. He's revealing to the, to the, uh, the Roman church, the Roman Christians, the doctrine that he preaches that he knows they've heard, whether accurately or not, heard that Paul preaches. Now, he starts in verse 10, and he gives a 14-point indictment against mankind. Now, um, well, let me go through them real quick. As it is written, here's number one, there is none righteous, no, not one. Number two, there is none that understandeth. A lot of people think they do, but they don't. But this is God by the Holy Ghost saying, here's the condition of man. Nobody is righteous. Nobody understands the things of God. Remember Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, the, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. There's only one way that you can understand the things of God because they're just spiritually discerned, and that is to come into the family of God through Jesus. Besides that or apart from that, you're hopelessly lost. I don't care how many degrees you've got. I don't care how many letters are at the end of your name or how many seminaries you've been to. There's a lot of educated people that think they understand the things of God, but because they don't know Jesus personally, have not a clue. Unfortunately, a lot of them have a large voice in the, or a loud voice in the church. There is none that seeketh after God. Now think about what that means. Here's the Holy Ghost saying every religion on the face of the earth, everything that man has come up with, every doctrine, every idea to seek after God is not seeking after God, is pursuing the devil. They are all gone out of the way. 
They are altogether become unprofitable. The word unprofitable is the word rotten, like rotten fruit. Anybody know of anything rotten fruit's good for after it goes bad? Not a thing in the world. That's what he says man is like. The next one is uh, number six, I think it is. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Verse 13 is number seven. Their throat is an open sepulcher. You know how you go to the doctor and he tells you to stick out your tongue and say, ah? The reason is because your tongue and your throat is a good indicator of the health of the body. God's speaking in the same terms. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Number eight is with their tongues they have used deceit. Number nine is an expansion on that. The poison of asps is under their lips. He's talking about how a snake has a, a poison sack in his mouth. That when he bears his fangs that poison sack then comes into play. And the attack against the prey, whatever it is that the snake's after, about to bite, is not just the bite of the, the snake itself, but the poison that comes with it. He's saying that we have moral poison sacks in our mouths. He's talking about unregenerated man. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, verse 14. Verse 15 is number 11. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Well, we're sure seeing that in our day, aren't we? Look at how things have changed just in the last few years. Everybody's willing to kill everybody. And there's no talking to anybody, no reasoning with anybody about anything. Destruction and misery are in their ways, verse 16. And the way of peace they have not known is number 13 in verse 17. Finally, the last one, number 14. The 14th point is in verse 18. There is no, and this is probably the worst one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It used to be when I was a kid, people wouldn't do things because they had a fear of God. Uh, that doesn't seem to be existent today. Nobody seems to fear God for anything. Now, in verse 19 and 20, we'll take these together because this is talking about what the law can and cannot do. Again, Paul's talking about the influence. Forgive me for running through the first part of the chapter real, real quickly, but I want to get to the last verses 21 through 31 really are the, the meat of the, the chapter that I want to spend some extra time on. Verse 19, so now that we know, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. The law wasn't given to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not subject to the law of Moses. It doesn't matter if they even know what the law of Moses is. They're not under it. They're not subject to it. For them, it's only through faith in Jesus that they have an access to God. But it says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, under, to, to the Jews, in other words. For what purpose? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now keep that in mind. We're going to read verse 20 and then back up. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He said, here's the purpose for the law. The purpose for the law is to give you knowledge of sin. Not to make you righteous. Not to give you right standing with God. Now the Jews thought the law was all about right standing with God. The Jews thought they were superior to everybody else because of the law that was given to them that gave them a special place with God. That's what Paul's been destroying since chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 verse 20. You don't have any special place with God. You had a special privilege because the law was given unto you. You had a special privilege because the blessing of Abraham was given to you through obedience to the law, but you do not have a special place of standing with God. Now, think about why that is. God is an all-consuming fire. We don't like to think of God in those terms because we like to think of God as love and grace and peace and all that other kind of stuff. And that's true. Those are his characteristics and his attributes. But you cannot do away with the fact that he is a holy and righteous God, and, he, and sin cannot stand in his presence. Sin of any type cannot stand in his presence. You remember when God told Moses, Moses wanted to see the face of God? He said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my face and live. So he said, here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you. And I'll pass by and let you see my back parts. Remember the story? Why? He said, you can't see my face and live. Because God is an all-consuming fire. Now, does that mean God is mad at Moses? Or if God wasn't mad at Moses, why did he make an exception and just let Moses see his face and stay alive? Because it's impossible. Moses was not redeemed. Moses was not made righteous. Moses was a keeper of the law, but, the, but that doesn't mean he was perfect. 
and he was still subject to the law of sin and death. He was still under sin. And no man, no woman, no human being can stand before God in sin. Now, Paul is painting a picture of God bringing you before a courtroom. He's painting the picture of God bringing you in the courtroom and he lays out indictment after indictment after indictment, Jew and Gentile alike. You don't have a prayer. It's an open and shut case. You don't even have a defense. Every mouth is shut. Every mouth is stopped. There is no excuse. Now, what's the purpose for him bringing you into the courtroom? So he can pronounce judgment on you? So he can sentence you? No, that's not what it's about. God brings you into the courtroom for one and only one purpose. And that's what Paul's been doing through the first two, well, the last two chapters. From verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 20. He's been bringing you into the courtroom, Jew and Gentile alike. He's been showing you. Now, he's emphasized the Jews because they had a different attitude than the Gentiles about it. But he's been bringing you before the courthouse or, or into the courtroom, showing you point after point after point, this is why you deserve death. This is why you have nothing to claim on your own. If one Jew anywhere, Abraham or Moses, either one, or anybody else, if any one person could have claimed some special exemption because of the place they had with God or the relationship they had with God or the things that God told them that he didn't tell anybody else or whatever the case was, then there would be no need for a savior. Paul is wrapping the package tight. He's saying there is no hope for you except the one means that Jesus is, that God has made available, and that's Jesus. Verse 21, the whole chapter hangs on these two words, but now. According to what belongs to you, according to God's righteous judgment, according to the holiness of God's nature, you're toast. I don't care who you think you are. I don't care how long you've been trying to keep the law of Moses. I don't care that you haven't lifted a finger on any Sabbath day for the rest of all of your lives. You're toast. But now, everything changes. Paul brings you to the courtroom for the purpose, not of God exacting judgment or passing sentence on you, but to declare you righteous. Think of it. It's like being in a courtroom and the whole case is made. Day after day after day, the case is made against you and finally there's nothing you can say. Whatever you are planning to say has been blown to shreds. And you're expecting your time to come where they say, okay, it's your time to make your case now, but you don't have anything to say anymore. But God, who's the judge and the jury, instead of passing judgment and saying, well, you certainly see what belongs to you, you certainly see what's due unto you. He declares you're righteous. But now. And this is where Paul starts introducing the subject of righteousness. Folks, what is righteousness? People have so many different ideas of what things mean, what Bible terms mean. Righteousness is often considered to be right standing before God. Right standing before God. What can you do to gain right standing before God? Well, the law couldn't give it to you. But so often we, even as Christians, try to work ourselves, try to do certain things, try to curry favor some way or another. We try to pray enough. We try to believe enough. We try to do enough good things, whatever the case might be, so that we feel like we can stand before God without a sense of shame and guilt. But you need to realize something, folks. Right standing before God is not something that belongs to you. You have no standing before God. That's why when the Bible, whenever the Bible talks about righteousness, it always talks about it in terms of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, the only standing before God you're ever going to have is in Christ Jesus. The verse of Scripture that should never leave your thought is, but now we are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The only place that you have with God and ever will have with God, I don't care if you've been saved for a minute or have been saved for a hundred years, I don't care if you're the worst Christian in the world or what the world would consider to be the best Christian in the world. You still have no different standing before God. Your standing before God is in one and only one thing, and that is the work of Jesus. That's it. That means I can't be a better Christian than you. That means you can't be a better Christian than me. Now, you may do, you may do more good works than I do. You may be more loving toward others than I am. 
But that doesn't make you a better Christian because the only standing anybody will ever have is in Christ Jesus. So quit listening to the devil telling you what a lousy Christian you are. Agree with him if you have to, but move on. Sometimes that's the best way to go. The devil says, well, you don't deserve anything. You're exactly right. But thank God I'm in Christ Jesus. What's he going to say? No, you're not. Excuse me. I was there when I got in. But now everything changes. Here's the hinge that everything turns on. But now the righteousness of God without literally apart from the law is manifested being witnessed, meaning it was spoken of by both the law and the prophets. But now this is the day of righteousness. It's not the day of the law anymore. It's the day of righteousness. Now remember what this means to the Jews that are, that are well, in this church and every church that Paul preaches this to. It means they're being stripped of their identity. It means they're being stripped of their life, lifelong associations. It means they're being stripped to the core. And folks, that's exactly what the attitude that every one of us should have. When we're in Christ Jesus, we've just been stripped of everything that we thought we were hot stuff about. Or we've just been stripped of everything that we thought was a hindrance and held us back in life. Either way, you need to be stripped down to the core. And that's exactly what Paul is doing to the Jews. Now, the Jews were wanting no part of it. That's why the Jews fought against it. That's why the church at Jerusalem was such a mess. There were people that could not give up their heritage. In many cases, like for the priests and so forth, to be stripped of who they are and their national identity means to be stripped of their jobs. So it was an economic situation for them. It It was a social issue for them. But it's still the same. But now the righteousness of God without literally apart from the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God which is by faith of literally in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe here's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus your only standing before God is and forever will be in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus Now, that means you have the same standing with God that Jesus has. Does Jesus need to do anything to improve his position with God? Then do you. His righteousness is yours. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I need to work on being a better Christian. Well, if that means you need to work on walking in love, then I agree. We all do. We need to manifest who we really are, who we've been made. But it doesn't change your standing with God. And folks, if you're anything like I am, if the devil deals with you in in anything close to the same way that he deals with me, it's always about whether or not I'm worthy because of something that I have or haven't done. That's where he attacks you, isn't it? Well, what is worthiness based on? Being in Christ Jesus. Now, I understand if somebody doesn't get it the first time you hear it or the 50th time you hear it. But these are things that you need to meditate on. You need to come to the realization on the inside that the truth is your righteousness is of God in Christ Jesus. God cannot. He is just. He cannot look at you and say, well, I intended for righteousness to be for everybody in Christ Jesus. But boy, you've really messed things up. He can't do it. He made a group. That group is called in Christ Jesus. And everybody that names Jesus as Lord and confesses him as as Lord and Savior is in Christ Jesus. That we have the same exact righteousness, not righteousness like Jesus has, the same righteousness. That's going to mean more to you as we go further and and explain a little bit what Paul says. Notice the last phrase in uh, verse 22, for there is no difference. That should not be in verse 22. It should be in the, the beginning of verse 23. Because he's not talking about there's no difference 
regarding righteousness, he's saying there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's just been making the case that Jew and Gentile are the same. He's not making the case for righteousness being the same for Jew and Gentile. He's making the case for the sin of both the Jews and the Gentiles are the same. So he says this, he says, for there is no difference, literally distinction. The word difference is the word distinction. There is no distinction for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can't see it in the King James, but if you look it up in the Greek, you'll find out that these are competing tenses. For all have sinned, past tense, and are falling short of the glory of God. Present tense. So surely all have sinned and therefore are worthy of the wrath and the vengeance of God. And all are falling short because of man's depravity and the indictment that he's delivered against mankind. Being justified freely, free gift, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. When Paul identifies and introduces the word righteousness, he introduces the word redemption and he introduces the word remission. These are new concepts, especially for the Jew. Because now he's going to start talking about something that has to do with the Jewish day of atonement. He says, being justified freely. Here's where your righteousness comes. Here's the courtroom. The courtroom, after everything is just just set in place, you know, just in perfect position for God to lower the boom and say, that's it, hell for you, eternal wrath and judgment. God declares you. He slams down the gavel and he declares you righteous. Why? Because you're in Christ Jesus. You've believed the gospel. Remember, Paul started off in chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. This is God's gospel, good news, in and of Jesus Christ. Being justified freely. Being justified freely. Folks, that means if you tried to dig up old sin in your life, you can't find them. You might remember them, but they don't really exist. I would recommend that you wash your mind and your memory of things that don't exist anymore. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the purchase price that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word grace, uh, uh, the word grace is the word charis. It's the word that we get our uh, English word charity, which we talk about as love from. But the word charis means something more than that. The word charis in the Greek means a boundless ocean that overwhelms. So here where it says being justified freely, it's talking about the free gift. Why were you given a free gift? You didn't deserve it. As a matter of fact, the the indictment was laid out against you. The case was made. If there's anybody that didn't deserve it, it was you and me. But God declared you righteous. He justified you. He made it as if you, though, as, as though you had never done the things that you were just indicted for. Being justified freely. Why? Because of the ocean, the boundless ocean of God's love. The reason that God brought you into the courtroom was not just to show you what you needed, although he did, but was to reveal to you his love so that he could do something for you. being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Now, propitiation is the word mercy seat. It's uh, it's the covering for the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Verse 25 is God looking back over the history of mankind for 4,000 years from Adam to Jesus, whom God has set forth, talking about Jesus, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. Remission is a new word for them. Old Testament atonement covered sins over. New Testament talks about remission. Righteousness is about the remission, the removal of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. In other words, it's saying God looked the other way, made exceptions, kept man within arm's length, for 4,000 years until Jesus could come and be the propitiation. Now, the propitiation is a, is a day of atonement word because the mercy seat was, uh, was only uh, applicable one day of the year, and that was on the day of atonement. The day of atonement was a, 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 a terribly bloody day 
for Israel. We think of it in some terms, you know, that it'd be a festival and it would be a, a, a sacred ritual and stuff like that, but it was a blood splattered everywhere you go, smell of death type day. Everybody had to bring in their own lamb. Everybody had to bring in a sacrifice for themselves. You had to be present when that sacrifice's throat was cut and the blood was splashed on the altar. More than likely, the blood was splashed on you. If not, you were walking through the blood in the outer court to get to the temple and so forth. Blood was everywhere. And it was designed to be that way. It was designed so that man would recognize this day that wipes away our sins for one year at a time is about blood. It's about blood and it's about death. But now for Israel, there was a ceremonial ritual that took place, and that was two goats or or lambs or whatever, rams, whatever you call them. They're all the same thing. But two rams were taken, and the the high priest would draw lots for each one. They'd both be examined by the priesthood and declared to be worthy and without spot or blemish and so forth. And so they'd draw lots, and the lot fell to one, and he would be the sacrifice, which meant the other one was going to be the scapegoat. Now, what happened was this. Before the lamb was sacrificed, the blood was shed for the sins of Israel. The scapegoat was taken, and the high priest laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat and pronounced the sins of Israel upon this scapegoat. He went through this long list. It was a long, long recitation where every sin that was known to man or that they had ever come up with or whatever was pronounced upon this scapegoat. And at the end of this recitation of sins... The, the, the ritual was they were transferring, the high priest on behalf of the people were transferring the sins of the people that were enumerated upon this goat, the scapegoat. And at the end of this, the scapegoat would be carried by one of the prince led out into the wilderness where judgment, the judgment of God would fall upon him. Now, that judgment could, could um, uh, come in any number of ways. Sometimes the, the rams were um, killed by wild beasts. Sometimes they would fall off cliffs and, and hurt themselves, kill themselves in the rocks. Sometimes they'd starve to death out there or, or die of thirst or any number of ways. And the priests, generally, whoever was in charge of it, had to make sure that it didn't turn around and follow them back. So in many cases, they would stay out long enough to where they would see what happened to it, see that it was dead, because that was the whole purpose, is that judgment had to fall upon the scapegoat out in the wilderness, which signified the wrath of God coming upon the one that is bearing the sins of Israel. That's very important because Paul has just spent two chapters telling us about God's wrath and God's judgment. Now he's going to tell us, here's how that wrath and judgment works. It comes upon the scapegoat. Now the other lamb, the sacrifice for Israel, is going to be slaughtered by the high priest. The throat is going to be cut, caught in a basin. And then the high priest is going to take that basin, that that bowl of, uh, of blood into the Holy of Holies. But he's got to be really, really careful how he, how he goes in there. He has to take it, the, the bowl in one hand, and he has to take it in his other hand, a censer that's emitting smoke. And he's got to cover that room with smoke before he gets in. He's got to swing it before him so that he doesn't, isn't seen or doesn't see the glory of God in there because he's still not covered by the blood. He's not redeemed. And because God is an all-consuming fire, if he goes in without some covering, blood in his hand and smoke that covers his presence, then he's going to fall dead in front of the altar or the, the Ark of the Covenant. If he does everything right, then this blood is placed on the mercy seat, the top level, the top covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Bible says Jesus was not only the scapegoat, he was not only the blood that was offered as a sacrifice, but he's the mercy seat itself. And so where it says that Jesus was the propitiation, the mercy seat, it means very simply that Jesus paid the price. We look at Jesus on the cross and think that was it. That wasn't it. That was the place where Jesus shed and offered his blood. But Jesus did not do the work of the scapegoat on the cross. The scapegoat was commanded in Leviticus, or the high priest was commanded in Leviticus regarding the scapegoat, to take the scapegoat into a land uninhabited. That's a type of hell. To where the judgment of God would fall upon him. That's what Jesus is withdrawing from in the Garden of Gethsemane, folks. He knows it's not just a few hours on the cross. And remember, Jesus died before the, uh, the thieves did. He didn't spend a long time there. He did not suffer on the cross 
as just the crucifixion itself, even as much as the two thieves did. But he suffered more because his sin was laid upon him at that point. But then the real punishment, the real wrath of God was, was uh, laid upon Jesus or forced upon Jesus when he was in the earth. The days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's when the Bible talks about in Jonah. Jonah prophesied about the waves crashing upon him, the waves of God's wrath crashing upon him. A lot of people read that and think that Jonah's talking about the, the water in the fish, but he's not. He's talking about a lot of things that happened, a lot of things that didn't happen to him. He's speaking of Jesus. He talks about how the mountains of the depths were broken up and poured upon him. Well, that didn't happen to Jonah in the fish. Breaker after breaker after breaker of God's wave. Psalm, uh, what is it? Psalm 88, I believe it is, that speaks of these things. The waves of God's wrath come down upon Jesus. And you need to understand something, folks. And that is, we like to look at God as a loving God. We like to say, Abba, Father, and all that kind of stuff. Jesus only called him that one time, and that was a private prayer. But look at all the times that he calls him Holy Father. See, Jesus didn't recognize or emphasize the, the daddy part that so many people like to emphasize. Jesus emphasized the holiness of God. I think we'd be better off if we would emphasize that too. You know where the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, it says, but he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The important thing that I want you to see in that verse of scripture is God did not spare his own son. It says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to bruise him. Why? Because God is thirsty for blood? No, because God cannot look upon sin. And this is his chance for all of eternity to do something about sin once and for all. So he didn't hold back a lick. He poured out every ounce, every bit of his wrath upon Jesus. People get upset because the movie, The Passion, was too bloody. Oh, dear Lord. It was nothing compared to what it really was and what really happened. And how in the world would you make a movie that would show the wrath of God being poured out in the lowest part of hell? Jesus was at the place. Now, remember, he's made sin. Jesus has made sin. He didn't just take sin upon him. He's made sin. In other words, the sins of mankind, even as the scapegoat, it was, symb uh, it was symbolically transferred to the scapegoat for Jesus, he literally became sin. That's why Moses was instructed in Numbers chapter 21 to lift up a serpent of brass on the pole, not a lamb. A serpent of brass, it signifies Jesus being made sin. The serpent signifies or symbolizes sin, not righteousness. Jesus didn't hang on the cross as the righteous son of God. Jesus hung on the cross as the sin of mankind, the substitute for mankind. But oh, after he was buried and his spirit went into the lower part of the earth, that's when things really got dicey. That's where God didn't spare one little bit, one ounce of punishment. Because see, folks, sin has to be paid for. Either you or he had to pay for it. Thank God he paid for it as your substitute. Now, what was the end result? The end result was your sins were remitted. They were removed. And Jesus became this propitiation, the mercy seat. To declare, well, let me read it again, verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Let me ask you a question. How was Jesus declared righteous? If he became sin, whose righteousness did he regain? It wasn't his own. You don't lay down righteousness and take it back up again. So when Jesus was declared to be righteous, whose righteousness did he gain? Whose righteousness was he made? God's. That's the same righteousness that you are, that you have been made in Christ Jesus. That's why I say you've got the same righteousness as Jesus now. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. 
that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now, folks, this is a real important verse because it speaks first of God's justice. In other words, if God had cut any corner, if he had backed up on any bit whatsoever, if he had gotten, if he had looked at Jesus and felt sorry for him and said, well, I'm not going to pour out all my wrath. I'll just pour out a little bit. And we'll say that does it. Then God would not have declared himself to be just. But the verse of scripture that we just read, what number is it? Verse uh, 26. Verse 26 means that God did everything that was necessary to do for every bit of every sin to be paid for so that he could stand back, so that eternity could stand back and judge him as righteous, even with his own son. He didn't hold back. He didn't withdraw. He did everything that was necessary for the claims of justice, the holy, consuming fire God's claim of justice would be satisfied. And that's the basis where he's able to be your justifier. The implication is, if he had held back on Jesus, your justification wouldn't be the real thing. But he was so intent on delivering Jesus up and sparing not his own son that your righteousness is now complete in him. That's what Paul's teaching. But the Jews are wanting to say, no, 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 no. We've got the law. Abraham's our father. And what they're doing is they're denying their need for justification by faith. Which is the same thing people do today when they make excuses. You ask somebody about Jesus, they say, well, I've always tried to live as a good person. You know where that's going to get you? Right in the middle of hell. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? What do the Jews have to boast about then? (laughs) It is excluded. By what law? What law makes this boasting go away? Strips you of this boast of being a descendant of Abraham, a natural descendant of Abraham and and one whom the law was given. Is it of works? The law of works that does it? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous, By faith, without or apart from the deeds of the law. Your righteousness will never be enhanced by your works. Never. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching that you shouldn't do good works. You should. The Bible says that we'll be judged for our works. The word judged is a difficult word for us, but it really means our works will be proven. In other words, when we get to heaven... We'll stand before the Lord and we'll have to answer for the things that we did that were according to the flesh versus the things that we did that counted for eternity. Walking in love counts for eternity. Those are things that will be purified. Those are things that you'll get credit for. Those are things that you'll be rewarded for. If we just did things to gain in the flesh here on the earth and those things will burn up and it'll be like we never did anything. So it's an award ceremony rather than judgment in the sense of wrath or condemnation. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yeah, he's of the Gentiles too. Why? Because the same wrath belongs to Jew and Gentile both. The same price was paid for Jew and Gentile both. The same declaration of righteousness was made for both Jew and Gentile alike. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision by by or through faith too. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, it goes back to something we said before. The only way you can establish the law, truly establish the law, is carry out the punishment of the law. And that's what was poured out upon Jesus in the heart of the earth. The establishing of the law literally means that God poured out every curse every statement every prophecy everything that the bible and the law and the prophets ever declared would be a result of unrighteousness god poured every ounce of it on jesus and that established the law the establishing means the completing of it it means it wiped it away once and for all for somebody to try to put themselves back under the law 
of the Jews to try to live according to the law of Moses now, it doesn't exist. It may exist in their mind. It may exist in their thinking. But Jesus wiped that all away. Why? Because he carried upon himself in the heart of the earth the punishment. Every last line and period of the curse of the law upon himself. That's why Galatians 3.13 says Christ has made a curse for the law. We are, oh, I lost it. What does it say? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for, for us. How has he made a curse for us? It means every last part of it was poured out on him. There is no curse of the law left. Oh, Pastor Mike, I've just done so wrong. I'm just cursed. Well, from who? There is no curse of the law anymore. There's nobody under law anymore. The Jews aren't under law anymore. They don't know that because they've rejected Jesus. For that reason, and people get upset when I say this, the Jews are without covenant with God. There is no law. The only covenant they had before was the law of, uh, was the, the law of Moses. There is no law of Moses anymore. There's a record of the law of Moses, but it's not in effect. And I know a lot of people like to think that, well, we're blessed when uh, those that bless Abraham will be blessed and all that kind of stuff. That's Old Testament stuff, folks. There is no blessing for blessing Abraham or blessing the Jews now other than blessing our Christian brothers. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan for Israel, but they are without covenant with God. Why? Because that covenant, the law of Moses, was fulfilled and established and completed, finished by everything that Jesus did. Don't get me wrong. I'm on Israel's side more than anybody on the world. But that's not where my blessings come from. And I don't have to worry about being cursed if Israel does something wrong and I'm not on their side on some point. I'm blessed because I'm in Jesus. And so are you. Do you see what he's saying? But now. This is the day of righteousness, folks. This is the day where you've been declared righteous. You've been justified because of what Jesus did. Can't improve on that. You try to live up to it. But even then, even if you fail to live up to it, you're still righteous in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we've been declared righteous. We've been justified. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus for the remission of sins. Thank you, Father, that our sins have been removed. When we miss it now, all we have to do is confess our sin. You're faithful and just to forgive us so that we can live free from sin, past sins and present sins. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing it is to be in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk worthy of that place in you, Father, as we walk according to your New Testament law of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.